This is on uh, Desmond Tutu. Um, so I am an adult. My name is Jim Beitler. And um, this picture was taken at Church of the Res. On the one Sunday, I attended Church of the Res for a friend's baptism. So I thought it was necessary to make some modifications. Oh. A shot across the mark. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, we're going to begin with our litany of saints. Let's pray. For Lancelot Andrews, John Wesley, and Charles Simeon, and for all who preach the word of God. For William Wilberforce and Josephine Butler, and for all who work to transform the world. For the martyrs and peacemakers of our own time, who shine as lights in the darkness. Amen. So the Litany of Saints, uh, I've been reflecting on what it's all about. And I think it's just a wonderful reminder for us of many things, one one of which is this wonderful passage uh, from the Apostle Paul, which we'll look at in just a second. The body is one and has many members. But um, more than that, um, kind of restatement of that comes from C.S. Lewis, who uh, said in his piece, Christian Apologetics, not all things can we all do. He was a big fan of two-person mission teams, someone to essentially uh, break down one's intellectual prejudices and then another to make an emotional appeal. And Lewis thought he was terrible at the latter, um, but was very skilled in the former. Um, but the idea was that the same, the same thing as that, um, that, that vision of Paul. And really uh, what I'm getting at is that our, our litany is really a, a prayer of interdependence, and it's an, a prayer of dependence, uh, dependence on God and then interdependence uh, on one another, and a, a kind of reminder of that every time we say that, um, which is really consistent uh, with what Desmond Tutu was all about, uh, is all about. Uh, Desmond Tutu um, was a proponent of a notion called Ubuntu, and that's what I'm going to be primarily focusing on today. Um, Michael Battle has one of the um, kind of official biographies of Tutu. He's also got this book, The Ubuntu Theology of Desmond Tutu, which is a really good read if you're interested um, in Desmond Tutu's theology in a little bit more detail. Um, So we're going to be talking about a theology of Ubuntu in five short acts. Um, And we're going to start with scripture reading. Then we're going to move on to discussion. This is a little anti-All Souls, perhaps, but we're going to do it. Um, because I think it actually exemplifies what I want to talk about. Um, and then I'm going to give a brief talk on Tutu and Ubuntu. Um, and then we're going to do a little rhetorical analysis, because I'm a, r- a rhetorician, so that's what we do. And then finally, we're going to end with the doxology. So a theology of Ubuntu in five short acts. And we're going to begin with the scripture reading. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. 
This is the word of the Lord. All right, Act 2. So what I want to do is um, something that may be slightly awkward given our setup. Um, I mean, we're, we're working against the structure of the environment, right, because we have these pews set up in a particular way. But I think it'll be okay if we just all acknowledge the awkwardness of it. Um, so here's, here's my plan. I want you to just turn. Some of you are going to have to stand uh, a little bit. Some of you are going to have to move just a little bit. And I, it doesn't have to be someone you don't know. But it can't be someone you're sitting right next to. <laughs> Unless it's someone you don't know well or haven't connected with in a long time. And I would like you to ask these questions of one another after you've introduced yourselves. What kind of activities are life-giving to you? Where have you seen Paul's vision of the body of Christ in action And where do you see yourself in Paul's vision? Now, to set us up for this, I want to take a minute and just have just sit in silence with these questions. Okay? So no you don't have to say anything. And this is going to be weird silence. You can just think about it. Think about these questions, and then we'll move. Okay, so let's take a minute. Awesome. Um, and it's, it's, I think it would just be remarkable to think about what just happened um, from a kind of bird's eye view, both th- during the time of silence and in the, in the time of speech, what was being lifted up uh, at that moment in terms of a kind of polyvocality of praise. Um, so that's Act 2. All right, so Tutu, uh, Desmond Tutu. So Desmond Tutu, uh, South African Archbishop, a uh, little bit of context is, is necessary. In 1948, uh, the National Party in South Africa uh, came to power, and South Africa became an apartheid state. Uh, so that's legal racial segregation. So uh, several races couldn't live in the same areas as whites, use the same facilities. And so the, the white minority had pl- power over the non-white majority. Um, and so... Much of the 20th century, the latter half of the 20th century then, uh, there was just a lot of uh, violence and bloodshed and all kinds of uh, oppression uh, going on in the country. But there's also resistance, uh, largely brought about by the ANC uh, party and uh, people like Desmond Tutu. Desmond Tutu uh, was a fierce advocate uh, for racial equality and justice uh, in the country. One of my favorite stories about Tutu comes from uh, a book by uh, Jim Wallace. Jim Wallace was covering what was going on in South Africa. He was actually in uh, St. George's Cathedral. Um, The president of South Africa, P.W. Bota, had uh, just basically had a crackdown on anti-apartheid activities in the country. 
And uh, so uh, there, there was a, a larger police presence in the country. The police were given more authority. And uh, the anti-apartheid resistance was fighting back. And one of the ways they did that was they were holding a rally uh, at St. George uh, Cathedral in Cape Town. And uh, Desmond Tutu uh, was speaking. And as he was speaking, uh, Wallace says, the police came and they lined uh, the walls uh, of the cathedral. They had tape recorders and guns. It was, uh, I, I like to think of it as a kind of infernal stations of, stations of the cross. Huh. I mean, so you can imagine Tutu, he's sitting there uh, or standing there preaching, and they, they come in and, they're, and they're, you know, they're waiting to basically arrest him. And um, this is what he said. He looked at them and he said, your cause is unjust. You are defending what is fundamentally indefensible because it is evil. It is evil without question. It's immoral. It's immoral without question. It is unchristian. Therefore, you will bite the dust. And you will bite the dust comprehensively. (laughs) And then he told them to come join the winning side. And according to Wallace, the church just erupted. And they danced out into the streets, and nobody could arrest all of the worshiping dancers. Um, so it was, it was that kind of thing that Tutu was involved in. He was always in the middle of the fray. And um, as the African National Congress uh, gained more and more of a following, including an international following, there's a lot of international pressure uh, put on what was going on, uh, put, put on South Africa. Um, there began to be a power shift. So in the 90s, uh, Nelson Mandela, who was imprisoned as a freedom fighter uh, on Robben Island, which is a great place to visit if you ever go to Cape Town, uh, he was released from prison. And so if, if you were around in the 90s, you probably remember this. It was a global phenomenon when Nelson Mandela uh, kind of emerged uh, from prison. And eventually, there was enough support that there could be elections, democratic elections. And uh, Nelson Mandela was kind of elected as the the country's uh, president. And Tutu describes uh, what it was like to vote in his really great book, uh, No Future Without Forgiveness. I really like this uh, this passage. The moment for which I had waited so long came, and I folded my ballot paper and cast my vote. Wow, I shouted. Yippee! That's, this is classic tutu. It was giddy stuff. It was like falling in love. The sky looked blue and more beautiful. I saw the people in a new light. They were beautiful. They were transfigured. That's, that's interesting because of what he says then on a few pages later. The white person entered the voting booth burdened by the load of guilt for having enjoyed the fruits of oppression and injustice. He emerged as somebody new. He too cried out, the burden has been lifted from my shoulders. I am free, transfigured, made into a new person. He walked tall with head held high and shoulders set square and straight. To have this situation in which there can be some kind of restoration. And there was still, though, a problem. So, like, democratic elections have happened. But what do you do with 50-plus years of racial injustice and violence in the country? What do you do with that history? Tutu said that the courts were 
would, would, would have been flooded with all the cases. The courts could have never held uh, all heard all the cases. Um, so how do you address decades of human rights violations? And um, this uh, really relates to a whole field uh, that tries to answer that question, and that's the field of transitional justice. What do you do during situations in which normal justice doesn't work? And uh, throughout the 20th century, there have been a lot of an- different answers to this question. On the one hand, you have something like Nuremberg, the Nuremberg Trials. Uh, it's retributive justice. On the other hand, you have basically national Amnesty. You basically let everybody off the hook. Tutu called that amnesia, uh, essentially. And on the other hand, it was basically punishment. And so what they tried to do in South Africa was try this middle way, uh, which uh, was um, truth-telling. People, victims, survivors uh, is a better term, who had been injured could come forward and tell their stories and be heard. That's an incredibly important thing. And it was often described as a kind of justice. Um, Teresa Godwin Phelps has a book uh, about how when torture happens, when somebody is tortured, they're reduced to pre-language screams. Right? They lose speech. You can't talk when you're being tortured. And so the restoration of speech is a kind of rebalancing. Um, so there's truth-telling. And then they also allowed perpetrators to come. And if they were deemed to have told... Um, the full truth, which was very difficult to determine, and their crimes were state-motivated, like it was at the behest of the government, they were granted individual amnesty. So they were forgiven, essentially, by the state. And there were just wonderful moments uh, as part of this process of reconciliation. Of course, there were horrible moments, too, because in some cases, justice was denied uh, to people. And, um, you know, it's still an open question. I mean, South Africa is as economically divided uh, as ever, more so um, in some ways. So there's huge inequalities in the country um, still. But at any rate, there was this process. And not getting into whether the process was ultimately successful or not, what I'm really interested in is Tutu. Like, how did he work toward reconciliation? And one of the ways that he did it, which was in part based on, based on the kind of South African concept, uh, was this notion of Ubuntu. Um, Ubuntu, when the country was, tra- South Africa was transitioning to a democracy, it was written into the interim constitution. They said, we need Ubuntu, Ubuntu in our country, and Tutu picked up on that. So Ubuntu is, uh, he would often contrast it with the Western notion of the self. Uh, kind of an autonomous individual. And it's a, it's a simplification for sure. Uh, but that was the way he spoke about it as a way of communicating it. Uh, Ubuntu basically says that a person is a person through other persons. Now I've got stuff on your handout. So you need to look at the handout now. It says a person is a person through other persons. Humans are, uh, as Tutu would say, bound up in a delicate network of interdependence. So the notion is that I am not an isolated individual, but that my humanity is wrapped up in your humanity. The essence of humanity is a corporate affair. Our lives are bound up together. 
for Tutu, the notion of Ubuntu is actually tied to creation. Uh, he gave a speech in uh, the U.S. Uh, when he said this, and this is also on your handout. God is smart. God has created us so that we could never really be self-sufficient. I need you to make up for what I lack as I make up for what you lack. And you can almost see God rubbing God's hands in glee and saying, ah, even if I have to say so, that really is smart. <laughs> Again, Tutu so great. Um, but the idea was, in South Africa's case, if I dehumanize you, I'm dehumanized. And if I build you up, I'm built up. Um, and that's Paul, <laughs> right? If I suffer, you suffer. If I rejoice, you rejoice. That's what the body of Christ um, is all about. Um, and so this this thing happened in South Africa. What, was it successful? Um, it can be debated. Successful on some levels, unsuccessful in other levels. But Ubuntu was uh, central to it. Um, I just think it, it's a wonderful message uh, for us and to kind of be reminded of. And it's, it's actually very Anglican. Um, it's not only Christian, but very Anglican. Um, Michael Battle, who wrote that book on Tutu, observed that Tutu's concept of Ubuntu was influenced by his Anglican heritage with its Eucharistic understanding of community. Um, so it was, it was kind of, uh, to use uh, a metaphor that our catechist likes, baked into uh, Tutu's uh, work, uh, understanding. Um, so I want to turn to uh, Rowan Williams to deepen uh, the notion a bit uh, in terms of uh, uh, a definition of it. So I just finished this uh, three-volume um, collection. It's a, it kind of just emerged as a trilogy from Rowan Williams. These are really short books. These are the the, the British covers: uh, being Christian, being disciples, and being being human. And you know, I've got Ubuntu on the brain, uh, but I really, I mean, it's a prevalent theme. Even though Williams does not talk about Ubuntu, it's all over the place in this trilogy. And so. Um, we can, if you turn to look at your handout now again, like so much of what it means to be human and be a Christian is wrapped up in this notion. So I love what, I love what Rowan Williams says about consciousness. Consciousness, he writes, as we normally think about it, has a relational dimension. I can't think without thinking of the other. I can't even think of my body. The zero point of orientation without understanding that it's an object to another. To have a point of view is to understand that the world is constructed out of diverse points of orientation. The the way in which we think, our very minds, our very understanding of self is wrapped up in the fact that I am seen, uh, not just a seer. Uh, On baptism, I'll just skip through these. You can read them all later. The solidarity that baptism brings us into, the solidarity with the suffering is a solidarity with one another as well. He's got this great passage where he's talk, he talks about uh, as we are baptized, we, we go down with Christ into the water. And that's actually a movement down into, the, in, into suffering, into death. And, um, but it's solidarity with one another as well. It is what some Christian writers called in a rather for, forbidding word, co-inherence. We are implicated in one another. Our lives are interwoven. 
And here's the echo of Paul again. What affects one Christian affects all. What affects all affects each one. And then the final one on the page on Christian community. The community that most perfectly represents what God wants to see in the human world is one where the resources of each person are offered for each other. I love this. I cannot be what God designs me to be without the life of others also developing according to God's plan. It's wonderful. We, we develop together. Um, our, our gifts come uh, together uh, in some remarkable uh, ways. All right, so that was part three. Part four, rhetorical analysis. Uh, Martin Luther King, Jr., two, uh, this notion of interdependence, this notion of Ubuntu is kind of central to his thinking, although he never, to my knowledge, used the word Ubuntu. Um, and we've just got to read very quickly uh, one of the most famous documents of the 20th century, the letter from Birmingham Jail. Of course, we can't read it all. It's incredibly long. Um, but it was a response to the fact that King was imprisoned for um, parading without a permit in Birmingham, thrown into prison. Um, this was during a period of U.S. history when public accommodations were still not desegregated. Um, so in Greensboro, North Carolina in 1960 uh, was the, uh, one of the major sit-ins, but the Civil Rights Act of 1964 hadn't happened yet. So there was there was work being done to try to try to desegregate uh, the South. And so King went down there, gets arrested, and then eight clergy uh, write this letter called A Call for Unity, um, as you probably know, who appeal to, and this is a quote, law and order and common sense. Um, we are now confronted by a series of demonstrations by some of our Negro citizens directed and led in part by outsiders. We strongly urge our own Negro community to withdraw support from these demonstrations and to unite locally in working peacefully for a better Birmingham. Rights, when rights are consistent, consistently denied, a cause should be pressed in the courts. All right, so that brings us uh, to King's uh, letter, uh, April 16th, 1963. This is uh, um, right around Easter time. Okay, so he's in prison basically on Good Friday um, and Holy Saturday. Um, and he begins... Now, I think the way to understand this letter is to know two things about rhetoric. Number one is ethos, the way in which a speaker positions themselves in discourse. How, so the question to ask is, how does King position himself through his words? How does he present himself? The second thing to know about the letter is definitional. This letter, if you read it as a series of definitions – and redefinitions, you'll understand it a lot better. So those two things together are are key. So we begin. My dear fellow clergymen. And there's just great four great words. <laughs> right? Because of the repositioning work the king is doing already. Right? My dear. Right? It's affection. Fellow. Solidarity. Clergyman, it's professional affiliation. Now, this guy's writing from prison. He's essentially been disempowered. But to say, my dear fellow clergyman, it's a political, powerful act. He's repositioned himself right from the beginning. Right? So these four words are pretty powerful. 
All right, so now we go on to the first paragraph. While confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all the criticisms that cross my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day, and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel you're men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. He's writing from prison, and he's talking about his secretaries, right? He's got a desk. He's a professional. Notice how he's positioned himself, right, right from the beginning. Again, that professional affiliation comes out. Now, is he unwise and untimely? No, there's been a redefinition right? He's measured. A redefinition has taken place and a repositioning has taken place. Now, the middle two paragraphs are up to you. So second paragraph is this side of the congregation. Third paragraph is this side of the congregation. You just need to turn to somebody next to you, read the paragraph, and then talk about how King positions himself and how he redefines the situation. Okay? Try it. Uh, Second paragraph, third paragraph. Okay, I know that's quick. All right, so. This side read a paragraph that began, I think I should indicate why I'm here in Birmingham since you've been influenced by the view that argues against outsiders coming in. So what does King do in that paragraph in response to the label of being an outsider? basically says, I'm, I'm, I'm not an outsider. I've got this connection. Uh, it's an organizational connection. Exactly. Uh, he's an insider in Birmingham. He's not an outsider. Good. And then this uh, group read, but more basically, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. How does King reposition himself or define the situation differently in this part? Yeah, right. So if the second paragraph is about his organizational affiliation and ethos, the third paragraph is about his vocation, his vocational connection to the history of the church, which is a history of kind of justice-seeking and shalom. And that brings us to the fourth paragraph. This is where it just is masterful, okay? Moreover... I'm cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality 
tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. There's Paul. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. Do you see what he's done? He said, you're an outsider. He said, I'm not an outsider. I'm an insider for these reasons. And that position that he defines for himself, he then makes the position of the country, of everybody living here. Wait a minute. Not only am I not an outsider, there are no outsiders in the entire country. We're connected. You're not an outsider, James. <laughs> All right. So that is the uh, kind of lesson of Ubuntu uh, from Martin Luther King. And that brings us uh, to Act 5. And if I could have my leaders, I have leaders, right? Yes, I do have leaders. Yes, good. Uh, to come up and lead us in the doxology. And as we're singing the doxology, um, think about the doxology as a prayer of dependence and interdependence. <laughs>